we'll do a loving-kindness contemplation this morning and I have already explained to you the difference between that and the meditation but just to mention it once more when you have a loving-kindness contemplation you look at this statement and see how it applies to you yourself and see if you can find a way to actualize it to make it become real in other words it differs from the meditation in so far that in the meditation we try to arouse that feeling and actually be enmeshed and completely filled with that feeling whereas in the contemplation we try to find out whether we actually have this sort of understanding within and can make it become real we examine ourselves and our reaction if a feeling arises at the same time of that nature that's fine but it is designed towards understanding the contemplation the uh, meditation is designed towards the actual feeling in order to start please put the attention on the breath for just a moment Now please repeat after me. May I be free from enmity. Meaning is of this that no feelings inside of oneself of being an any enemy to anyone or anything. Look inside and see whether you have any such reactions to anyone whether if you have them they are for your own benefit and then try to see how you can let go of them in order to have that inner peace that comes from being free from enmity
May I be free from hurtfulness. Again, we go inside and see whether we have had any hurtfulness towards others, any living beings. That can be physical or emotional. It can be caused through hate and dislike or through indifference. We can examine ourselves and if we find that there is any such thing within (coughs) try to find a way to let go to resolve that the heart may become pure of that May I be free from troubles of mind and body. This is extending loving kindness towards ourselves, resolving to look after our own mind so that it will not react negatively, and to look after the needs of the body as far as rest go and its other demands for the simple reason that it will give us the opportunity to be whole and thereby helpful
In this case, our contemplation should show us whether we are actually looking after our mind and body and resolve to do so. be able to protect my own happiness here it is important to contemplate what is my happiness to make very sure that we know what constitutes our own happiness not our pleasures. And then, how do we protect that happiness so that it cannot be touched by outer conditions? Whatever beings there are, may they be free from enmity. After we have looked at ourselves and found a way to be free of enmity, we wish it for others. And knowing the way, we may be able to help them.
whatever beings there are, may they be free from hurtfulness. And again the same, if we have looked inside of ourselves, have found a way to be free of hurting others through hate, dislike or indifference, then we wish the same for others and may be able to show the way. It needs an inner understanding which the contemplation can help us to gain. Whatever beings there are, may they be free from troubles of mind and body. If our contemplation goes along the lines that we wish the same for others, that we try to attain ourselves, it will bring us more and more into the realm of oneness with others, no separation. Feeling embedded in the whole of existence, not threatened. Therefore, what we want to do for ourselves has to be done first so that we can then extend that understanding and feeling to others.
whatever beings they are, may they be able to protect their own happiness. If in our contemplation we have found out what constitutes our happiness, we give total freedom to others to find out what is theirs, not to impose our own thoughts and ideas and help them to protect that happiness, which makes us more and more harmless, less demanding, less aggressive. but also more and more in tune with all that goes on around us without having to interfere. Look at your own happiness of what it consists. Resolve to protect it and resolve to protect that of others. The next effect from gaining faith and confidence is wise consideration. That's what we've been trying to do when we discuss any of the teaching. The wise consideration which helps us to understand ourselves to the point where we one day will understand the whole of the universe. Naturally, wise consideration is part of our thought process. But it is deliberate and it is with wisdom, which is a great deal of difference from 
just thinking. When we think about problems and ideas that we have, that's not wise consideration. That's trying to get it fixed up so that it's most beneficial for our own comfort and for our own support system. That's not doesn't go under wise consideration. Wise consideration has to be the truth in the universal aspect. I'll wait till the car is gone. I can't yell any louder. <laughs> Maybe we can close the door or something. Wise consideration has to be done in an aspect of universality, a universal truth which applies to everyone and everything, and thereby applies to us. And that does not necessarily mean that we're going to get what we want or get rid of what we don't want. In fact, it probably doesn't. Because within the universe and the existence of all, our own wants and likes and dislikes are only another manifestation of greed and hate. And therefore, they do not have universal benefit. They have momentary satisfaction when we get it the way we want it. So trying to solve our own problems or trying to do things so that they come out the way we've got them uh, thought about, the ideas we have, is usually opposed to wise consideration. It's only when we have more and more insight into the teaching as it applies to everything and everyone where it is least harmless, harmful, where the harmlessness is Where that comes first, what is purifying, that's wise consideration. Within that <laughs> particular heading of wise consideration, we can look at the six roots with which we're born. Everybody is born with six roots. 
three of them are beneficial and three of them are harmful. We've all got all six. The best thing to do is to find all six within oneself and then no longer be surprised why the world is the way it is. And then no longer blame anyone for their lack of wise consideration, which is the usual way people act, and not to blame oneself for that either. Because unless we have made a very concerted effort to diminish the three unwholesome roots and to cultivate the three wholesome ones, we are beset by all six in constant rotation. We are hardly ever standing still on one, and so is everybody else. A person who practices a spiritual path has to know primarily that first of all these six are there, and secondly, that the unwholesome three have to be diminished. Otherwise, sitting in meditation is possibly a little beneficial for one's own self-discipline. It may bring a bit of peacefulness, but it's not a spiritual path. Meditation is a means for the spiritual path. It isn't the spiritual path. Our three unwholesome roots are called greed, hate, and delusion. And that's their overall heading. And under greed goes everything we want, and under hate, everything we don't want. And they are both caused by delusion. So the underlying factor for the whole human dilemma is delusion. No matter where we see anything happening that has either strong greed or hate, or even just mild want or not want, it's all based on delusion. Now the word delusion has a very specific meaning in the Buddhist teaching. It means one thing only. It means that we think we are a solid entity called me. That there is a core within which is everlasting, needs protection, should be supported, and has the compactness of a kernel or a core. That delusion brings us 
to the idea of me and mine and therefore we want what we think is supportive and protective for me and mine and want to get rid of all that which we think could be destructive for me and mine. The whole of the spiritual path has only one <coughs> direction and that is to be destructive of the illusion of me and mine. Not to be destructive of me and mine because they don't exist anyway. To be destructive of that delusion. And unless we are willing to do that, that path is not for us. If one meditates long enough and understands the Dhamma well enough, this is undoubtedly what will happen. Unless we put so many barriers in the way, and then meditation doesn't happen either. In other words, one can't have one's cake and eat it too. One can't have nice, peaceful, wonderful, blissful meditations with a change of consciousness and not be willing to get rid of me. It just doesn't work. It's either or. Either I want the, I'll do the one, then I can get the other. But if I don't want that one, I won't get the other either. Many people, or most people probably, come to meditation because they want to get an addition into their lives, an addition of something peaceful and nice, something that will create a balance between their stresses and their wishes for peacefulness. Very nice idea, at least it brings them to meditation. But unless we're willing to go a step further, it will never happen. This is a difficulty that most people encounter in meditation. Why doesn't it work? Well, it just won't. Because in meditation, we have to be willing to give up all our illusions, all our delusions, all our viewpoints, all our opinions, particularly those that are connected with what we want, how we want it, when we want it, and who is the person that wants it, me or uh, must be me, can't be anybody else. All that has to be dropped. And if we don't do that, the meditation just doesn't work. And then we're disappointed and try something else. And that too, of course, has the same aspect as our worldly matters. It has a momentary satisfaction in it. The underlying delusion cannot be removed without first removing some of its resultants. 
sum of its resultant meaning part of our greed and hate. This underlying delusion of who we are and what we want and how we want it is so deeply embedded and so anchored within that we can't even see it. We don't even know it. We think that's the way it is. Well, it is the way it is. But that it is an illusory way of being is very rarely understood without having the pointer, the guideline to see it. Because of its depth of embedment in within us, we need to approach it from a different angle. We need to approach it through greed and hate. When they become lessened to the point where their roots are no longer so deep and not so all-embracing within our own heart, then it becomes easier, first of all, to get at this delusion, to see it, and then eventually to uproot it. Now, we have several ways and means of getting at greed and hate. The first one, which I have mentioned already many times, comes through the meditative practice as an automatic assistant. The moment we are concentrated, we can't have greed or hate. So we have a momentary purification. One moment of concentration is one moment of purification. With that, we have a great benefactor in our concentration. The more often we do it, the more purification happens. One moment builds up into two, into three, and so forth. Naturally, that's not enough, because that purification, although it happens during the meditation, can be counteracted through our thoughts and actions in daily life. Therefore, we have to continue with that purification work also in all our daily activities. And all of us have the opportunity for that at all times. The good route, the beneficial route, which is opposed to greed, is generosity, giving. Giving wisely, naturally. There we have to remember that we can only give what we have, not what we are hoping to have one day. If we want to give money to someone who is poor, well, we first have to have the money, not hoping that one day we'll have it. So if we want to give love, if we want to give attention, care, if we want to help with seeing things the way they are, we first have to do so ourselves. Our practice, therefore, has to be 
the renunciation of our delusions and the cultivation of our wisdom, then our generosity will have a strong foundation. However, we can't wait till we have become utterly wise until we start helping somebody. The more we purify in all ways and means, the easier it is to see the delusion. So generosity means that we give what we have and hope to develop more. Every one of us has material goods that we can give. We have things, we have money, we also have time, and we also have the ability to listen. All these are generous ways of being with others. We have skills. Each one has skills which we can share. The skills that one person has developed may be of great benefit to others. We must remember that we're not doing that to benefit the world. Whether the world's going to be benefited by it or not is a result over which we have absolutely no control. We're doing it for the purification of our own heart and mind. We're doing the action for the sake of the action because the action in itself is wholesome and skillful. It's good and beneficial and it purifies. Whether the other person will then or persons will then have benefit in the measure that we thought they might, whether they will be grateful or not, whether they can actually use what we have been giving to them, that's a secondary consideration and does not enter into generosity. Generosity is giving only, nothing else. Everything else is conjecture, projection, future and attachment to results. Generosity is only generosity when it is done for its own sake. Only then. The Buddha gave different accounts of generosity. He mentioned it many times. It's the first of the ten virtues which we need to develop it is mentioned in the uh, Great Blessings Discourse as one of the Great Blessings. And he divided it up into three kinds. The first one is the generosity of a beggar. Beggar doesn't have much, so it can't be very generous. However, he means in a different way. He means that if a person gives away the things they don't want anyway, that's beggarly generosity. One can kid oneself that I'm so generous because I'm giving all these things to the um, 
Salvation Army, but in reality, I didn't want them anyway. A second kind of generosity is the generosity of a friend, of a good friend, sharing. Sharing what one has. Sharing it with others because one has already understood that others are no different. That this is one manifestation, one existence, one universe, an optical illusion that everybody is separate. Just like we can't see the forest for the trees. It's all trees, isn't it? And we call it forest. So all people, we can't see humanity because there are so many people obstructing our view. And yet it's just humanity, that's all. And we are part, each one is one part of that. And being one part of that, feeling separate and alien, threatened and vulnerable, is our cause for fear and our cause for aggression. But when we feel embraced by the totality of this existence, human and otherwise, we can feel totally at ease and safe. It just is. Whether we are within it or not, that existence doesn't change. It'll be there with us or without us. When we have got some kind of inkling <coughs> of the totality of existence, it is much easier to share what one has because the benefit of that sharing comes to oneself and others in the same measure. We don't have to protect ourselves with so many things which are only a cause for worry and fear that we might lose them. And then there is the generosity of a king. And that's the person who gives away more than they keep. Now this is rare, and because of that, such people often become famous. They do not wish to burden themselves with belongings, because belongings are a burden. They need to be kept clean. They break down and have to be repaired and have to be renewed. They are always in the way. The less one has, the easier life is. And also, they feel such people feel an urge to be part of the whole and not keep anything for themselves more than what they need. Now what we need is usually confused with what we want. That too needs to be contemplated upon. What do we really need? It's very simple. We need food, clothing, a shelter, and medicine. And not very much of each. The rest 
are all one. And if we have them, fine. And if we don't have them, that's just as well. So we have these three We could aim for the generosity of a friend. That already would bring us into that realm of the good friend, which I talked about the first evening, where we are someone who is available as a helper and as a rock of solidity for other people's difficulties. We could aim for that kind of generosity and we will soon find out that the one who benefits most is the one who gives. And we don't have to wait for another lifetime to have that resultant. We get it immediately. Giving brings happiness to the one who is giving. And also, the more we give, the more we'll have. It's a law of nature. And yet, it's totally negated and disbelieved by humanity as a whole. You can look at it when you think about love. The more of that you give, the more you've got. Logical, isn't it? Works for everything else in exactly the same way. The more we give away to others, the more there is in here. Strangely enough, it works exactly the same way also with material things. And that is something people don't want to believe. I have to try it out. It is a very interesting law of nature that what is given away in purity is received back in purity. This is another aspect of generosity that the Buddha mentioned. The purity of the receiver purifies the gift. Now there we have an interesting aspect of generosity. It means that we need enough wisdom where to give our time, skills and belongings to. I think we could find the equivalent in Jesus' words, do not throw pearls before swine. The Buddha's words are on the same thought. Give where the giving is received in purity. When there is a receiver who receives your gift, whatever it may be, whether it's money or time, skill, effort, when there is a receiver who is pure, he will use that gift with a pure motive and for the benefit of others again. 
so it has purified your gift. If you give it to someone who is, although very poor and maybe down and out, but totally impure, he will use your gift in a very impure way and it will go down the drain together with his wine bottle or whatever it is that he's using. So you can see that the purity of the receiver makes sure that the gift will go far. It will stay within the universal manifestation where it can reach many. And because one has the wisdom to know where one should give, one has already attained a measure of purity oneself. If one can't see where one should start to give, one must start wherever one has an opportunity. There are opportunities everywhere. And then see whether this giving brings about more generosity in oneself or whether it diminishes it. Now, if it is diminishing one's own generosity, one has the wrong idea in mind. One has the idea of resultant. However, here again, we have to use wisdom and discrimination. If one's time and energy is spent without any resultant, we could think again whether we can't spend it somewhere else with better resultant. Even though we, not, we are not getting attached to that result, we are interested in spending our gifts where they are received in purity. So we need to look at both aspects very carefully because it is very easy to use and abuse our own energy. We also have to be sure that we have our own body and mind without problems our troubles, that we are protecting our own happiness. So we need to have a very clear balance. If we are expending our energy just anywhere at any time and can't see that any good comes of it, we need to think again. That's wise consideration. That is a consideration which we also can call a contemplation. We're contemplating on what we're doing. In fact, it wouldn't hurt to contemplate that every single day. What am I doing with my time and my energy? Am I using it in the best possible way for the benefit of myself and others? If we check it out again and again, we will find that we have become habituated to misusing energy. It's a very easy thing to do. 
that we are either putting it where it doesn't count at all because it's just uh, directed towards proliferation, entertainment, or just habitual um, discursive thinking, or we are expending our energy in places where it doesn't count because the receiver just isn't pure enough. We can check that out. We are our own master of our own destiny. We don't have to do what we thought we had to do. It's very important to have a daily check on that. How am I using my time? Time is also a gift for others. And since all of us have limited energy, none of us have unlimited energy, we need to spend it wisely. All that goes under wise consideration. So when we have seen that we have those three roots generated by one and resulting in those other two, we will no longer blame ourselves for others, but if we are intelligent, which I'm sure we are, we will find it important to diminish the unwholesome and cultivate the wholesome. Greed is much more difficult to get rid of than hate. Because greed is supported by society unless it becomes so wild that one goes against the laws of the land like breaking into a bank. But otherwise, greed is supported. It is considered to be a success if we have two cars in the garage and a boat outside. And if the house has 12 rooms instead of three or four, which we really need, that's supposed to be successful. So, Greed is supported by society and as long as we don't go against the law we also pride ourselves that we're not hurting anybody and we don't call it greed. We call it making a living or um, looking after the family or providing for old age. Those are the words we have coined for that kind of greed. That greed is massive and it destroys our environment and it brings an imbalance into people's minds. Not because some are poor, they also have greed, they'd like to be rich. But the imbalance in the mind comes from the fact that we never know exactly where to draw the line. Maybe a little more will be a little better? Certainly not. We know that intellectually. 
But this is a very important facet for wise consideration. We can't do anything better with our time, with our thought processes, which are intelligent enough for that, to consider what is greed and what is need. The people who are more inclined towards greed have an easier life. They are easier to get along with. And also, they find it easier to have some love for themselves and others. That love is, of course, colored by greed. They want to be loved back. And um, that love is also colored by some satisfaction with one's so-called success. But at least such a person finds a bit of ease within and because of that greed is so difficult to get rid of. Because such a person also is far more inclined towards faith, a person who has more greed than hate will be find it much easier to have faith. It goes along with greed. Greed wants something. It wants to attach to something. So faith also wants to attach to something. Particularly blind faith is very much an, a facet of a person who has more greed than hate. Our first and foremost defense and rebuttal of greed is generosity, giving instead of wanting. And the other one which we need to use is our introspection to realize every time it comes up. And when we get accomplished at realizing every time it comes up, we will find that it hardly ever sleeps. It is a continual wanting. It doesn't have to be anything big. When we sit, we'd like to stand up. When we stand up, we'd like to sit down. When we are sitting long enough, we'd like to lie down. Have we been lying down long enough? We want to get up again. Have we been reading a book? We want to stop. Watching TV? We want to turn it off. There's always something. We're never quite satisfied. When we become very skilled at watching ourselves, we will notice how much restlessness this greed incurs in us. It is our cause for restlessness. And that restlessness shows itself in our constant doing something else, wanting something else, and then finally at night falling into bed sleeping a few hours and starting again in the morning. A merry-go-round without end. The people who have more hate than greed are difficult to get along with, find it difficult to get along with themselves because they hate themselves too, of course, are more inclined to practice properly because they are quite unhappy within 
And because our society does not approve of hate, even of mild hate, like yelling at another person or getting angry, even that's not approved of, we are far more aware of that, what, that we have that. Mostly, of course, because it's bothersome. It's a feeling inside of having swords which are poking our insides. And that is so uncomfortable that we really want to do something. There's a very famous enlightened monk in northeast Thailand who had a number or still has a number of western monks in his monastery and he used to say I really only want those that are full of hate they're going to practice <laughs> I have no idea whether he only got those but that's what he said <laughs> These people are hard to live with, of course, but he didn't care. He was enlightened. We do care. We don't want to be together with those that are hard to live with, and we blame them for their attitudes towards us. We shouldn't. We should have compassion for them. They're feeling terrible. Now, if we ourselves are like that, we should have compassion for ourselves, we would never become hateful unless we're feeling terrible. And this is the indication why people want to get rid of this hate feeling so badly. It doesn't produce anything. Greed produces material goods at least. But hate just produces enmity. We can't even keep our friends. So we're on the losing end. Obviously, the um, indicated rebuttal for hate is love. But here we have to be also discriminating. Not to confuse this loving attachment to one particular person with real love. The loving attachment to one particular person is unfortunately greed. And since it feels better than hate, we go for it. It's pleasant. But it's also interesting to note that the word for greed in Pali is lopa, L-O-B-H-A. In Sanskrit, the B's of Pali change to V. And when you change that B to V, you get love. So greed and love have the same root in the Indo-Aryan language system. The word for love that the Buddha uses to differentiate between the real thing and the, um, the one that's connected with greed is the word metta, M-E-T-T-A. 
Now that kind of love does not want to get anything back. It's a strict generosity. It's giving only. And it doesn't discriminate between those that are lovable and those that are not. It can't discriminate because it's a quality of the heart and not of the mind. The heart doesn't discriminate. It either does or doesn't. The mind is a discriminator. You know already that we need the mind to discriminate, but not in a matter of love. In the matter of love, all we need to do is to cultivate it. We need to cultivate it again, not to make the world happy. That's the world's problem, whether they are happy or not. We're cultivating it for purification, for the purification of our own heart, for the ability to extend it without any limits. What are we doing there for the world? We have injected into the world at large one heart that's pure. That's all we can do. If everybody did it, the world would look quite different. I can assure you not everyone will do it because most people don't even know that they should do it. But even those that know they should do it, also not everybody will do it. First of all, it's difficult. But also, it needs a very clear understanding. Why? Why am I doing this? Again and again, we will find ourselves in front of things which we don't like. Why should we drop that, that dislike? Only one reason for dropping dislike, and that's peace. So if we're interested in inner peace, that's what we have to do. In order to counteract the hate that everyone has, and we'll all be set by it, we need to work on this every day, all the time. Because we are confronted with our own dislikes every day, all the time. If we become skillful at watching ourselves, we will notice that the wanting this and disliking that are belonging together. If I'm sitting and want to get up, I'm disliking the sitting, so I'm wanting the getting up. They're always together. And we can see it's happening constantly. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't get up. But what it means is that we first get acquainted with what's going on within ourselves and realize that that's the cause for having no peace. And by the same token, the cause for having no peace in the world because we are the world. Each heart, each mind is part of this world. So with all this, what goes on within each person, goes on in everyone. 
That is a guarantee. And as it goes on in everyone, everybody feels equally without peace. Graffiti and posters about peace are not going to bring peace. The United Nations hasn't managed it either. They've tried. Each person can only manage for him or herself. And as we manage for ourselves, we will have a little bit of vibration outward to others. How much depends on the strength of us, of our inward purification and purity. So the first item is introspection. That helps us to know what's going on. The second one is the concentration, purification because of concentration. And the third one is practice from morning to night. And it isn't only hating other people, and it isn't only wanting another motor car. It's much subtler than that. It's every time the mind rejects and resists, dislikes, or gets irritated. It's every time the mind wants to be somewhere else as where it is, and yet it will always be in the same place. It's always going to be contained within our thought processes. It doesn't matter whether we are sitting here or on the moon, which is about as far away as we can get at this point in time. The mind hasn't changed, it hasn't become a moon mind. It's exactly the same as it was before. So we need to be aware of the fact that we can do this work all day long by letting go of that what we want and letting go of that what we dislike in order to have peace in the mind. Naturally, that doesn't always apply. If we need to eat something, we need to eat something. But it applies particularly when we become restless. It applies particularly in our relationship to other people. And it applies particularly in our relationship to ourselves. All six roots are there, and are giving us, on the side of the skillful roots, the opportunity to purify, and on the side of the unskillful roots, the difficulties which we all encounter. The last one, the delusion one, or I should say the first one, the one that is actually the primary cause for it all, has as its um, opposite wisdom. The more wise consideration we can use on, a un on universal aspects of all that is happening to us, we are the microcosm of the macrocosm the easier it will be to attain wisdom. Wisdom does not exist in books. The wisdom that we find in books belongs to the one who wrote it. 
We can't get it that way. We can only admire him or her for it and say, yes, very interesting, wonderful. The only way we can attain our own wisdom is through this wise consideration, through becoming aware of what we're experiencing within and then understanding it in a universal way. Understanding that our wants are based on the me delusions and all other understandings which can come to us. When we have had the understood experience in any minor matter, we have gained wisdom. Wisdom comes from making connections. If we can connect up that what happens to us personally with that what happens to humanity as a whole, we can see the pattern. These connections are also important if we can use the teaching. The antidote for our fourth hindrance, restlessness and worry, is knowing more about the teaching. Getting in there and finding out what the Buddha said and then making the connection. Reading it is very nice. Without the connection, it doesn't help us. It has to connect up to what is actually happening to us. We can find within ourselves the whole of everything. And this microcosm which we are is a laboratory which we can use for our experimentation. And as we find that some of the experiments backfire, obviously we're not going to make them again. They do not bring peace of mind. They do not bring well-being of mind and body. They do not bring happiness naturally. We let go. We should approach ourselves like a scientist who goes into the laboratory to try out the different substances and how they react when they're put together. We all have these substances within and as we use them we get reactions. We get our own reactions, we get the reactions from others. If they're very fizzy and go up in the air, certainly there's something wrong with that combination. Just like when we put different liquids into a test tube and heat them and the thing just goes We have those situations in our own lives very often. Some combination didn't work. What we usually do with this, though, when it concerns ourselves, we start looking for an outside reason which will help us to justify what we've just done or helps us to justify why it didn't work. Totally useless. The outside reasons will never stop. 
they will continue on long after we are dead and buried. We can only change the inner reasons, the combination, the exactitude, the wise consideration of how we approach our inner self, what we do with it, how we live with it, and how we purify it. A spiritual path is a path of purification. One of the most um, famous and well-known books written about the Buddha's teaching in the fifth century of our time is called the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification. It contains the whole of the Buddha's teaching in a um, shortened version, all in one volume, and describes the way to purification. We have the three divisions of the teaching, moral conduct, concentration, and wisdom. We have discussed the concentration and the wisdom. So the moral conduct is still outstanding and will get its due discussion and another talk. Wise consideration is something that everybody can do. We need not be a genius or spiritually very advanced, but we need to drop, at the time of wise consideration, we need to drop our own personal wants and dislikes. Only then can we consider wisely. The whole of the spiritual path leads only in one direction, and that is to substitute delusion with wisdom, with insight. And that means the letting go of this illusion of separate entity, of solidity and compactness, of continuation, and see ourselves for what we really are, transparent, always impermanent, changing, and without any me inside that's doing that. Giving up this me needs all the different approaches I have mentioned, and giving it up the delusion of it, is often considered to be a matter which gives one a feeling of loss, something that is um, annihilating the most important aspect of our lives. That's a wrong consideration. It doesn't annihilate anything other than a delusion. And instead of being a loss of something valuable, 
it's a loss of a delusion and therefore the freeing of oneself of the greatest burden that we all carry it's sitting on our back like a monkey on our back and won't let us go it screams me 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 all the time letting go of that monkey on one's back is freedom and not a loss and when we can consider that sometime as a contemplation we can see that there must be that opening somewhere that opening where we lose this separation and alienation and return to our own source of being which is neither separate nor individual that's enough for this morning you can ask some questions if you like yes if you um, do something or give something with the intent to make merit you don't generate it's much better than not doing it but it's not the utmost purity of generosity because you would like to get merit for it the utmost purity of generosity is to give because there's nothing else to do except give however making merit very embedded in the um, buddhist countries is uh, still better than not doing anything yes earlier on in the morning we were talking about the contemplation we spoke about um, I think it's called pleasure and happiness what is the specific distinction between the two yes that's um, uh, not so easy always to know because we use the words uh, in our ordinary language intermingled and interchangeable but we should make a distinction that pleasure comes from sense contact and happiness comes from an inner source of let's call it joy which may be more distinctive to pleasure so pleasure and joy are not the same thing one is outward generated from outer conditions joy is inward generated from the inner condition based on love and peace is that clear okay what else yes well if there's no me who's going to be generous and who's going to stop hating the concept of me is a delusion which is the underlying cause for greed and hate so as I said earlier we have to get at this delusion through its components and resultants of greed and hate in other words we have to min- diminish these two in order to actually get near that delusion so in order to diminish hate we start working on loving kindness 
and one day we'll see the delusion staring us in our face and say, aha, that's it. And then we may be able to do something about it. However, the person who has actually lost that monkey on the back that says me is a person who has nothing else in their emotional makeup except love and compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity. That's all that's left of the emotions. But this is nothing but the practice path to get at those two components of delusion. Is that clear? Yes. Would it be a contradiction for a successful businessman to also be on the path and join the church? Sorry, I don't quite get it. Hmm? A businessman who is making extra money for his shareholders, let's say. Yes. That obviously has a inheritance that he is free. Can he also be on the path? Well, certainly. Why not? I mean, he may change his business habits <laughs> when he gets on the path long enough. That'd be fine. And if he doesn't want to change his business habits, he might not like to be on the path. If he changes his business habits, can he also make money? Can he make money? I wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> 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 well, he has, he has to first distinguish between greed and need. And need, certainly. Greed, no. So that distinction has to be made. And one can do that on a piece of paper very successfully. In figures, in mathematical figures. And then go from there. Yes. Sure. Ah, you mean if that businessman would like to be generous and hasn't got any money to be generous with? Well, we, if we don't have any money to be generous with, what we can do is use our time, our skills, and our love. It doesn't have to be money. But if we do have money, that is a good way too. However, as far as that goes, sometimes uh, people with a lot of money, and I have um, experienced that with some very, very rich people, they give the money, a lot of money, and then think that's it. They have no further um, personal uh, way of um, showing their generosity. They just write a check. and. Uh, it's sometimes one gets the feeling as if it was guilt money because they have so much. While still this is better than not doing it, but it doesn't get at the ego delusion. It's still better than not doing anything. So it isn't necessarily money that is, um, you know, the biggest uh, generosity. Although if one doesn't have very much, then giving money is a great uh, a sign of generosity. But we have other things we can give. Okay, what else? Yes. Uh, we talked before about points to say that we be not um, leading to peace. Um, but surely we have some responsibility to 
Yes, one can challenge it if one has the either the support of uh, many people that one can uh, use it do it together, or if one has any influence. But um, not in a um, aggressive way. That doesn't help anything. Uh, usually, it helps most if it is uh, uh, done in a, either in a way where people have some influence, I mean influential people or where the whole population of a country says, oh, I've had enough of this, which we have witnessed recently. And uh, it was, um, first it was not a peaceful revolution, and it killed many people. But when it became a peaceful revolution, it worked. And then it was possible to do it. So we can, yes, we certainly we can challenge these things, but it has often been done in the wrong way, often been done in an, an aggressive way. Uh, I saw a graffiti in Sydney once, and it was um, absurd. It said, um, make war to get peace. Mm, absurd, it's nonsense. It doesn't, well, it was on, on three or four walls. I can't even remember where it was. You know, so this sort of thing is useless. But yes, we should make ourselves heard if we can do that in a peaceful way. What else? Anything else? Okay, everything quite clear, wonderful. 